You may be seated. The mission of Jesus Christ is to gather a people for His own glory. And we as His people, as His disciples, we are privileged to participate in that mission. Every Christian participates in that mission to gather a people. We are on mission. You see, the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts most certainly did occur because of the uh, anointed ministry of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Certainly, the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts did occur through appointed pastors and position of leadership within the churches that were being planted in the book of Acts. But, much of the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts actually took place because of unnamed believers who were filled with the Spirit of God. They were empowered by the Spirit and they would open up their mouth and they would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. One author says that anonymous Christians were the ones who first took the gospel to Judea and Samaria. It was unnamed believers who founded the church in Antioch. And Antioch became kind of the hub or the base of the spread of the gospel in, uh, throughout the Gentile world. Unidentified disciples of Christ were the ones that spread the gospel of Christ to Asia. And so as we come to the book of Luke and we consider the 70 that were sent out by Jesus, that, that were going before Him to the various towns as workers into the harvest of souls, church member, Christian, you have to understand this is your passage too. Mom, this is your passage. And Dad, this is your passage. Teen and young adult, this is your passage. We are all disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ. We are all workers sent by Jesus into the harvest of lost souls. This is our mission, and it is the mission of every Christian. So take up your Bibles with that in mind and turn to Luke chapter 10 as we continue the second part of a two-part series entitled Workers for the Harvest. Workers for the Harvest. Luke chapter 10. And as you're turning to Luke chapter 10, there are ten, ten timeless characteristics of Christian workers sent out into the harvest. We covered the first seven last week. And those first seven added, uh, were really attitudes and uh, kind of precursor types of actions for evangelists, for workers sent into the harvest. The first seven didn't have anything to do with speaking the Word of God, which is what we think about when we think about evangelism. We're going to get to those three today. And what, as I read this, I'll briefly mention those seven, but we're going to spend uh, our time today on the last, 
the last three principles or characteristics of Christian workers sent out in the harvest. And I would just say as we start today, these are, these are not my words. This is not my idea. These are sobering words that we will look out today. So I want you to pay, pay careful attention. I want you to wake your heart up, your mind up. I want you to listen to the Word of God today. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of Him into every city and place where He Himself was going to come. Stop there. The first characteristic of a Christian worker is that you are appointed by Jesus. Keep reading. Verse 2, And He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. The second characteristic of a Christian worker is that you are few in number. Almost four billion unreached people haven't named, heard the name of Christ. And the fourth character is we are prayed into ex existence. I beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Verse 3, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. The fourth characteristic of a Christian worker sent out into the harvest is you are threatened by danger. We're called by Christ, and it's a dangerous calling. We're seeing it more and more even in our own city, our own state. The danger is ramping, out, ramping up all around the world, in the Middle East and in China, India, all around the world. Verse 4, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. The fifth characteristic of a worker sent out into the harvest, you are urgent on mission. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, and really that translation, a man of peace, is, is, should be rendered, I think, a son of peace. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. And so the sixth, uh, verse 8, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And so the sixth characteristic of a Christian worker sent into the harvest is that you are content with God's providence. Don't carry extra. God will provide. The very first house you enter, be content with the food and provisions that God has given to you. Don't look for other provisions. Don't get, try to get a better meal. Be content with God's providence. And in all of this, with the danger of the wolves and 
the lack of provisions and the need for protection. Every Christian worker is going to have to have that seventh characteristic that really is an umbrella over them all is every Christian worker must be dependent upon God. This is faith. It's going to take faith because we are lambs among wolves. And we have to remember, because we're lambs, we have a good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. And so if we're going to be faithful Christian workers, we must be dependent upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see why those are precursor attitudes and actions that come before ever opening up your mouth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then we come then to our passage, part 2, verses 9 through 16, in which we'll take up our our word and just read, and then we'll unpack it. Verse 9, And heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, now we're getting to some speech, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you... You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. End quotes. Instructions over. And they're sent out. In verses 9 through 16, we will look at the final three timeless characteristics of workers sent into the harvest, and they revolve around opening up our mouths. Which is what we typically think of with evangelism. Don't forget the first seven. Number one, then, or number eight, as we continue on, the eighth characteristic of a worker sent into the harvest. You are precise. You are precise with the message. We see this in verse 9 and verse 11. So we have these 70 that are sent out representing Jesus Christ. They're endowed with His power. And there's miraculous healings and there's exorcisms that are authenticating the messianic work that are authenticating and showing as in 
fulfillment to the prophecies that the Messiah is on the move, that He's coming to your town. It's a unique time in redemptive history and transition from the old covenant to new covenant, authenticating the person and work of Jesus Christ. But these cities are to be led into repentance. They ought to have repented in dust and ashes. And so the focus of all the ministry of Christ is on the proclamation of the word of the kingdom, the word about Christ. And so twice we see the precision of the message in verse 9 and 11. And and the houses that are, are... having a messianic expectation, the Old Testament saints of God who are waiting for the Messiah, peace would either drop into that house as they receive the gospel or peace would be pulled out of that house. But to both types of houses, those that receive and those that reject, both would get the precise message of the kingdom of God. They both would get the same message. And here's the message. They are to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. Perfect tense. The kingdom of God has come and it is near to you in this state, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The king is coming to town. He's right behind us. The king is here and the kingdom is has come. The anointed one has come. The Davidic king is here. The spiritual aspects of this kingdom have broken in in the presence of the king. And this message was to be precisely proclaimed. And certainly they said more than these five Greek words in their evangelism. But the essence of the message was this. In Jesus Christ, the Messianic King is here. Are you prepared for your King? Well, what was that message that Jesus Himself preached and John the Baptist preached and the 70 preached? We need to review it. So take your Bibles and turn back to Luke chapter 3. And let's listen to how John the Baptist preached the kingdom. John, Luke chapter 3, verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds, this is John the Baptist, who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So where every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to him to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. 
Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. And so John came and he was preaching turning from sin. He was teaching a repentance that bore fruit in keeping with repentance. And he warned about a wrath that was coming, the wrath of God that was worth fleeing. And he was saying you can't simply trust in your own righteousness. You can't trust in your name as a Jew or your name as a patriot or a good neighbor. You can't trust in yourself. You've got to see that you're in danger and turn from this sin. That's the bad news. But he goes on to the, to the good news. We pick it up in verse 15. Now while all the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming. That was the message of the 70. He's right behind us. One is coming. The messianic king is coming. One is coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And here's the the picture of the harvest that that, we, that Jesus picks up on, to gather the wheat into His barn. But He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Is that really the Gospel? Verse 18, So with many other exhortations, He preached the Gospel to the people. John the Baptist. And then Jesus came on the scene after He was baptized by John. And Jesus began to preach. Take a look at it in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He preached from the book of God. He opened up the Scriptures. And He preached. Verse 16, this is now Jesus. And He came, that's Jesus, He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up as was His custom. And He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, guess what? I'm reading from Isaiah. That's me. The King is here. The Kingdom of God has come near. I am the promised Messiah. I am He. I am the one for whom those who hope in the Messiah, the hope for the serpent head crushing Messiah, that He would come. I'm here. I am He. I am the one that's going to destroy sin and death. I'm going to make all things as new. The Spirit of the Lord is heavy upon me. It's the messianic anointing. 
is upon me. And I have good news for the poor in spirit who are humble before God. I'm coming to release you. And that bondage that you're in, that you feel the shame and burden of your sin. I'm coming to heal the disease of your sin. To open up your blind eyes so you can see it. You can see that you're in danger. To set you free, those who are oppressed and burdened by the weight of sin's guilt and shame. The joy part has come. The Messiah is here. The end is now. It is the year of jubilee. The kingdom has arrived in the presence of the king. Well, it didn't go well. They chucked him off a cliff. They tried to at least. Jesus walked through their midst and then Jesus would then minister. And He would be proclaiming the same message, often in parable form, often in story form, through the miracles. The point of the miracles was not the miracle themselves. The point of the miracle was to authenticate the man and the message and to be a living picture of this Gospel. And so Jesus would do things like this. A guy with leprosy would come up to Him and He wouldn't run. And He would be... Filled with tears and burden, if you are willing, I know, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then he'd do the unthinkable. He'd touch the man with leprosy and and say, I am willing and be cleansed. And then people would let people down through roofs and where he's preaching. And he would say to them, not get out, I'm preaching. He would say to them, friend, your sins are forgiven you. All of your sins because the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he would call losers like Matthew, the tax collector, to be a disciple of Christ. And then he's criticized by the religious elite who say, hey, you, don't, you can't throw a party for sinners. That's against the law. And Jesus says to his critics, it's not for those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. This is the message. It is the gospel of the kingdom. And we need to be precise with this message. Listen to me carefully. You can't just live out this message. We haven't done our mission if we're just living it out but closing our mouths. It's a lie. We must proclaim. We must speak. We must tell people like John did that they need to repent and turn from their sins. But notice also that the 70 were to give this message to both houses, right? Those houses that would receive Him were expecting the Messiah, and they were to also proclaim this message to those who would reject the Messiah. Those who just weren't interested. You know, the guys at the door? Slamming the door on the 70's face. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me share the message first. These people thought that they were good enough that their family name as Jews was their ticket into heaven. They didn't need to be broken in their sin. They were not broken in their sin. They believed, they didn't believe that they needed a Savior. So what do we do then when people don't receive us? 
when, when they don't want to hear the good news? Well, we've got to be clear with them. And that leads me to the ninth characteristic of a worker sent to the harvest. Number eight, you're precise with the message. Number nine, you are bold with the warning. You're bold with the warning. Look at verse 10. Let's pick it up in verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And so the Jews in Jesus' day who don't have any interest in Jesus, they want to follow their own life, they want to follow their own dreams, they don't want to give up their sin, they're content with external religion. These workers are to shake the dust off the city that clings to their shoes. Where this came from is the, it was just the idea that they could be contaminated by the paganism and unbelief. And so that became symbolic in the Jewish culture, simply a symbol for disdain and rejection. Really a public declaration of God's displeasure with them. It wouldn't work in our culture. They'd say, what in the world are you doing? But in that culture, it was a symbol of rejection and disdain, a public declaration of God's displeasure. Nevertheless, I want, he says, it's very strong in the Greek text, but know this, I'm going to say something before I go with these sandals that I've shook off. The kingdom of God has, perfect tense, has come near he's coming the king is coming do not let him pass you by do not reject your king do not slam the door in his face so Jesus then continues to give instructions to the 70 who are to go ahead of him and he says to those who reject the message of the kingdom, he says, listen, men, he says, to the, you must warn them. Jesus really begins to speak some of the most sobering words in all of the scripture in this place. Kids and teens, everybody, please hear the word of the Lord. You can't be neutral with Jesus. You either receive him or you reject Him. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. To wait till you figure it out is to reject the King. You can't say you follow the King. You can't say you know the King and love the King when you want to rule your own life and you haven't... Re Repented and turned from your sin. You want your sin. You refuse to follow Him. Now, get this. What's the context? Verse 57 of Luke 9. Look at it. Look at 57. As they were going along the roads, someone said to Him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. 
And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And also said, I will fo-. another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. The kingdom has come. Christ is king. He's king. He's come near. He bids you to follow Him. He means for you to leave some things in the dust and to follow Him. Turn and trust. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's not just your Savior from sin, your fire insurance from all this fire talk. He's the Lord who bids you to follow Him. And He warns us. He warns us in verse 12. And following, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. The city that closes the door on Jesus. It will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for that city. What kind of sin was going on in Sodom? I read some commentaries. It wasn't the sin of inhospitality. No. Two angels came to Sodom. They looked like men. And they said, hey, we're going to just spend the night in the public square. Lot says, no, no. Lot knew the depravity of the men of Sodom and said, you need to enter my house. You need to do it now. You need to stay in my house tonight. And here is why Genesis chapter 19, verse 4 Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both the young and the old. All of the people, from every quarter. And they called the lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And Lot said, My brothers, don't act wickedly. I have two daughters that have not had relations with man. Let them bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. But don't do anything to this men as they come under the shelter of my roof. But these people said, stand aside. And they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door down. And we need to pick it up with the fire and brimstone that fell down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, finally, his whippersnapper kids who thought he was joking, he's not joking. God's not joking. Finally led his family out of the fire. By God's grace, he delayed. 
The fire and brimstone ray down from heaven on Sodom. For as the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. How could you say that the God of the universe approves of homosexuality? But listen to me. Listen to me. Back to our passage. Verse 12. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day, the day of judgment, for Sodom than for that city. For the city that does not receive the messengers of Jesus Christ who proclaim the gospel of of the kingdom, that rejects the message of Jesus Christ, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Brothers and sisters, there are levels of punishment in hell. Clearly in this passage. Kids, teens, everyone listen to me today. The hottest place in hell is reserved for those who time and time again, having heard the news about Jesus, reject the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. See, the goal is to proclaim a message, the message of repentance from sin and faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one to whom John pointed, Jesus Christ. The point is repentance. And so, these cities were up north around the Galilean ministry, Bethsaida and Chorazin, the Jews and the people and the leaders and the religious experts, they rejected Jesus. They did not repent. They did not believe. And Jesus prophesied and said, if this message would have come to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in dust and ashes. Tyre and Sidon, and I, I can't unpack it, but I dare say they might give Sodom and Gomorrah a significant run for the money in depravity. These were a disgusting people. These were the Phoenician cities on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, a disgusting people. Read about it, Isaiah 23, Ezekiel 26 through 28. Mostly commercial seafarers, proud beyond words, absolutely greedy beyond comparison in their day, cruel, and I can't get into it, prostitution, that's all I'll say, slavery, no restraint. They sold Israelites into slavery to the Edomites, according to Amos 1.9. And listen, Jesus, are you telling us that these two cities would be in a better place on the day of judgment than the people of Israel and Galilee who rejected Christ and Chorazin in Bethsaida? 
That's what Jesus is saying. But it gets even worse. We've got to we gotta keep reading. That's why we do expository preaching. Verse 15, And you, Capernaum, now he's getting nasty. Now Jesus is getting absolutely nasty. And you, Capernaum, will, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Capernaum. Ring a bell? I'm thankful to Hendrickson who did a lot of my homework here. Thank you, Hendrickson. All of the, he reviewed all the blessings that Jesus had performed in that city time and time and time again. He called his first disciples in Capernaum. It was in Capernaum that Peter and Andrew and James and John were invited to become fishers of men. It was in Capernaum that became the center or the hub of the activities and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was in Capernaum that Jesus performed many miracles. Two of them were recorded in Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 7. See also John chapter 2. And yet, by and large, the population of Capernaum rejected her king. They didn't repent of their sin. They felt they were good enough. That's why Jesus says, do you think you will be exalted to the heavens? You know why? They thought they'd be exalted to the heavens without Jesus. They had their family name as Jews. They were a pretty good person. They were sincere in what they believed. They tried to keep the law. We're doing the best we can. You think, Jesus says, you think you're going to be exalted to the heavens? And it's just like us. I mean, the number one theology of how to get to heaven is this. Just die. Die and try. Or try and die. That'll get you in. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a good patriot. I'm better than the next guy. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good guy. The Jews did the same thing. We have Abraham as our father. We're the people of God by birth. Just be, Listen, kids. Just because your mom and dad take you to church doesn't mean that you know the Lord. Just because your grandma and grandpa were in church and your grandma played the organ for 40 years doesn't mean you know the Lord. And so Jesus says to the place where He probably ministered the most, heard the most, saw the most, had the most opportunity... had the most opportunity. The most golden opportunities. He says to Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. To hell. It's a warning. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament. The one the only one who is described in the Word of God as gentle and lowly of heart spoke of hell more than any other person in the Word of God. He was bold with the warning.
Hell or Hades is a place of everlasting punishment and torment. It's a place of punishment for sin. Luke chapter 16 verse 23 says this, In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Hades, or hell, is never-ending, never-ending, your awake torment in the lake of fire under the justice and wrath of God without end. Hell is the just right punishment for your sin. And either God is a monster or our sin is much more deadly and treacherous and awful than we can even imagine. And we have not scratched the surface of it. But what is the worst, most disgusting sin of all according to this passage? Having the most privilege of hearing and seeing the King who has come this side of the cross to hear again and again sitting in these seats, a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be called week after week to come to Jesus to find life and to find yourself saying, I'm closing the door. It's not for me. Not today. Not this day. Please. I hesitate. I t Today I don't want to preach this message because of this fact. Please, if you hear my voice today, do not reject the good news of the message of forgiveness through Jesus. Not today, not again. You're heaping up judgment. You may harden your heart. You, you have to understand the unbelievable, eternal danger of unbelief. Please, don't be indifferent. Don't, I know it's long. I preach too long. I get it. But still wake up. Don't be bored with it. Don't reject it again. Believe the Word of God. Don't be indifferent to Jesus. And workers sent in to the harvest. We've got to be precise with this message. Bad news and the good news. And we've got to be bold with this warning. We've got to call people to respond. We've got to get to the issue of eternal life and eternal death, to heaven and hell. We've got to remember that we're not speaking for us. Number 10, you are speaking for the Trinity. You are speaking for the Trinity. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. 
They got direct download from Jesus. Here's the message I want you to say. That doesn't happen today. Today we get the book. We get the Word of God. This is the Word of Christ. We don't bring our own opinion. We don't water it down. We don't take half of it out. We don't soften it. We don't make it harder either. We preach the Word. And when we preach the Word, Jesus is saying, when you speak, whoever listens to you has really listened to me. But it's encouraging the one who rejects us in this is really rejecting Jesus. But here's the bad news. They think they still have God when they're rejecting Jesus. And it's not the case. It's, it's sort of a domino effect. You reject the gospel of Jesus Christ found in the Word of God, spoken by His worker. You reject Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ, you reject the one who sent Jesus Christ. Who's the one who sent Jesus Christ? God the Father. Or as people like to call Him in the streets, God. The one they say they believe in? No. You can't be receptive to God and reject the claims that the kingdom of God has come near in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself says to people, He says in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore I said to you that you will die... Look at Jesus. I said to you that you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24. Don't die in your sins. Wonderful words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Oh, I hope this means something right now and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Wow. Into eternal life. I honestly don't get it. And I know it's because God has opened my eyes. I get it. But I don't get it. Eternity is a long, long time. This is the truth. Today needs to be the day of your salvation. I don't know how you can rest. And I pray that you would not rest until you settle it with Christ. But I don't know how you can rest. I don't know how you could ever have peace if you weren't sure if you're going to heaven or to Hades. I'm one of the 70 today, I'm not, right? And Jesus is knocking on the door. He's knocking on the door today. And the worker goes into the harvest, he knocks on the door, and he brings up peace. Peace upon this house. Because this is the message that the kingdom is near in Jesus Christ is the message of what? Work with me. The message of peace. 
The gospel is the message of peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because of our sin, God is angry with sinners. And so that means there is enmity. That means friction and there's separation. There's broken relationship. And let me say it this way. We are, you, if you do not have Christ, you are at war with the God of the universe. You're at war with Him. There's no peace. But Jesus would, as He set His face like Flint to go to Jerusalem in our passage, He would go to that cross of Calvary and instead, the Lord Christ, stripped of His clothes, beat beyond recognition, the white, hot Hades, hell itself in six hours, was poured out upon Him in six hours. And he consumed it. He finished whatever eternal damnation would be for your sins. In his own body, he consumed it. He drank the cup. And he said, I finished it. I've drank the whole cup of God's wrath. He rose from the grave. He proved it by rising from the grave. And Jesus did that. And so he has... He, if you would turn from your sin and see this and trust in Christ, it's as if all that sin then is put upon Jesus and now God can come near to you in love, in family, adopt you into His family, make you His own. It's not only a ceasefire, I'm indifferent, let me get on with running the universe. No, it's just a love relationship seated following Him, loving Him. That's why, is there any sons of peace in the room? Do you realize, Christian, that you are a son or a daughter of peace because of our Lord Jesus Christ? And when you trust in Him, all of your sin is gone. You're clothed in His righteousness. It's a ceasefire with God. The wrath of God has been satisfied on your behalf. You are adopted in His family. You're kept in the double grip of the Good Shepherd and the Father Himself. And I can just say to you in light of this passage, hallelujah, what a Savior we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say this, listen carefully, what a golden opportunity you have right now. What a golden opportunity. So I'd like you to bow your heads. I would ask you, is today going to be the day of your salvation? Will you, you have two choices, will you take everlasting peace or eternal punishment? Which is it going to be? Which is it going to be?